is the chamber's president thomas donoghue and several other businessmen said they were interested in assessing the changes taking place under president raul castro you're listening to the news on rthk Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. This is Ina Cho. On today's show, why are so many Chinese companies suffering from a trust deficit? Robert Greaves of Hamilton Advisors will share his theories. Next, journalist Heather Timmons of Quartz will take us through some of the biggest consumer tech stories. That's after a look at the Asian economy with Lucas Silipo, Chief Economist at Natixis. There's been a lot of tech news in the last 24 hours. The rapper Dr. Dre is joining Apple. Apple has confirmed it's paying $3 billion for Beats Electronics, best known for its headphones. Microsoft says nearly instantaneous translation will become available on Skype by the end of the year. And Google has unveiled a prototype for a car that doesn't need a driver. The car has no steering wheel, no pedals. Google hopes to test drive the new cars on public roads in the next couple of years. As someone who had to take the driving test three times, I think I should pre-order one now. There was a bit of profit-taking in the US market yesterday, but major indices did not fall far from their record highs. David Costin, the Goldman Sachs strategist who correctly predicted that the S&P would hit the 1900 mark, thinks market fundamentals are still strong. My forecast is that the S&P 500 will continue to rise towards 2100 at the end of 2015 and 2200 at the end of 2016. So the general trajectory is higher. Now, at the end of this year, forecast around 1900, the market is trading around fair value. Uh, That is to say that the market, historically speaking, is currently trading around 17 times the median stock, around 17 times forward earnings. That's expensive on a historical basis. And as I think, uh, looking forward, the trajectory of the market ought to follow profit growth. And profit growth will be rising uh, generally from $116 this year to $125 next year. you should think, as a portfolio manager, the trajectory of the market modestly towards the upside. That was David Costin, U.S. equities strategist at Goldman Sachs. According to Bloomberg, the average age of companies going public last year was 12 years. In the dot-com bubble era, it was four years. Is there a trade-off for investors looking for growth? It depends. Is it a mature, still a growth company? or is it a larger scale company? One of the things we saw last year was a diversification in the IPO market overall, and you saw a lot of of larger companies going public, uh, industrial companies, consumer companies, healthcare. That diversification is a very good thing. For the buy side, it means uh, more scale companies that mean more to their funds. Now, as it relates to technology companies that are a little bit longer in the tooth relative to what we might have seen in the 99-2000 period, again, I think the buy side welcomes that. Those are more proven models, and, and that is a function of the the abundance of capital that those companies have, um, the capital sources. They are not dependent on the IPO market the way they were in previous cycles. That's J.D. Moriarty, who runs the Technology Equity Markets Unit at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. He was telling Bloomberg that it's good that more tech firms are choosing to go public after they have a proven business model. I've got a couple more quick headlines for you. Nestle's moved into the beauty business with its $1.4 billion purchase of Canada's Valiant. That's a company which makes anti-wrinkle cream. And Manchester United's owner, Malcolm Glazer, has died at the age of 85. His sons will continue to run the club. 
Now, here's how Asian markets have opened. Heavy profit taking has hit the Nikkei 225. It's down over half a percentage point to 14,593 points. That's after five successive days of gains. The Australian ASX is down Oh, nearly eight points to 5,499. So, Cosby is up three points at 2020 points. Now, gold is continuing to struggle. Futures in New York has reached a 15-month low, and the spot price is down another 40 cents this morning to $1,258.90 per troy ounce. Earlier in New York, the S&P 500 slipped 0.1% from Tuesday's record close to finish at 1,909 points. The Dow dropped a quarter of a percentage point to 16,633 and treasury yield is down again. 10-year yield is now at a fresh low of uh, for the year um, at 2.45%. Let's say hello now to our first guest, Luca Sinipo. Good morning, Luca. Hey, good morning. Thank you very much for joining me this morning. Let's take a look at uh, global trade first. Yesterday, an OECD report painted a pretty grim picture. Exports by G7 and BRICS economies fell 2.6% from the previous quarter. In China, exports fell 7.3%. Now, there's a theory that trade figures in China are still reeling from an earlier crackdown on falsified invoices. Do you think that's true? Yes, I think that's true, and I think that uh, that is continuing uh, continuing on, and so this makes the uh, the, the trade figures for China uh, slightly unreliable. But I think we should look at this in a broader in a broader picture of uh, model of uh, the uh, global economy uh, changing, and uh, that's uh, in, in in the last fifteen years we have become accustomed to a model uh, that was the head on uh, international trade, the backbone uh, of, uh, of the strategy of growth of, uh, of, uh, of the economy. A developed economy were basically flooded with uh, uh, low, uh, low-cost goods, uh, and this allowed consumption to stay, to stay up, uh, mm-hmm. um, notwithstanding the fact that growth was in fact very weak and wages were very weak, uh, especially with respect to rents and profits uh, in of course in uh, in in developing country this this meant a huge uh, a huge destination for their export and so uh, an increase in growth and wealth so this this system is now over because of a number of uh, of of, of reason uh, two of which and the most important of which in my opinion are the uh, um, the fact that European growth is not coming back and European growth is not going to approach anywhere near uh, the uh, 2% we have seen in the first uh, half of the last decade, uh, and uh, they're going to stay low. And this, of course, um, has, uh, has dramatic consequences in terms of the source of demand and the total uh, mm-hmm. amount of demand in the world. And the, second, and the second point is China. China is changing. China is trying to, to, to go up the ladder to produce more sophisticated goods and higher uh, value-added goods, and this, of course, uh, provokes some uh, some changes in the global value chain of production. So both on the demand and the supply side uh, of the global economy, we're having changes that basically put uh, the international trade on a second on a second row. I now, would say. the uh, the renminbi 
is uh, up slightly this morning at 6.25 against the dollar, but um, it's only just recovered from a year low of 6.26 yesterday. But even with the weakening of the renminbi, which of course would make Chinese exporters more competitive, um, the government has announced um, a slew of um, little moves, um, little policy changes that will help make their lives better, like simplifying foreign exchange guarantees, more tax breaks, credit insurance and so on to exporters. Um, So do you think that the renminbi needs to go down, will be allowed to go down any further to help exporters? Yeah, <clears throat> I think that this is a plausible uh, explanation of what is happening and, uh, and, and the fact that exports are falling uh, not for the value of the RMB or not only for the value of RMB uh, in the past, I mean, when RMB was stronger, uh, but because of the structural reason I spoke about before, uh, Chinese, the uh, Chinese leader are trying to uh, uh, make the impact uh, on their economy uh, of this of this international trade fall less severe, uh, and I think this is the best way to read the weakness of the RMB uh, in the in the last uh, in the last few months, and probably will continue on for uh, at least until the autumn. Now, um, even with the, uh, the the world model, trade model changing, as you very clearly outlined, the government in Beijing is still sticking with a very aggressive target for exports and import growth, which is 70, 7.5%, right? So after a weak start to the year, the Ministry of Commerce said combined exports and imports will need to grow by over 11% year on year for each month from May to December. Um, shouldn't they be adjusting their expectations somewhat by now? You know, I think that targets, these so-called targets, so GDP targets, trade targets, and whatever target you you might have for China, are part of a communication policy. And communication policy, in order, uh, in order, everybody knows that with this new model of China, so more consumption and high value-added goods produced, uh, growth cannot be seven percent because otherwise you would you would have uh, in, probably inflation and inflation pressures that. Uh, the central bank will not tolerate. Uh, so probably, I, I mean, it's, it's under investigation and, and a lot of economists say a lot of numbers. Uh, I think around 45 and 5% is the new normal for China, for GDP. Uh, and I think that this, uh, this target, 7.5, and then it will be 7, and then it will be 6.5, are a, a gentle way of, uh, of adjusting market expectation, uh, which is maneuvered by uh, by by Chinese policymakers, so you don't have to think of this GDP number as a real number or as a real uh, representation of what is happening in your economy. Rather, it is an instrument through which Chinese uh, policymakers are adjusting market expectation as far as Chinese growth in the next decade. Now, with costs um, of manufacturing going up in China, Southeast Asian comp- uh, countries have benefited with a lot of factories being moved there. One uh, major exporter in Asia is, of course, Thailand. Well, when the military first took over, people were saying, hmm, maybe it's about time somebody uh, broke up a long stalemate between the two sides. And the BART recovered somewhat. Um, but now the coup is increasingly, increasingly looking like a threat to the um, economy. Do you agree? 
you know, it's always like this. I mean, the up and downs of the market, they justify everything uh, <laughs> and they tend to criticize everything. So uh, I, I think that, 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 I mean, you have the example of 2006, not a century ago. So 2000, the, 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 the last military coup. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The 2006 coup, uh, re, I mean, the result was uh, slower growth, more uh, less efficient economy uh, and uh, to, to, to the extent to which basically the coup, the coup itself was ousted by uh, a revival of political spirit of, of, of citizens, citizenship uh, uh, um, protest, and, 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 and so they had to they had to they were forced basically to to indict new elections. So uh, I think that it's very clear from the start that the coup is a, is a very temporary. Um, situation the 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 the, the shorter it lasts uh, the better it is uh, but of course it is also true that it uh, averts a, sti- a stalemate to continue uh, keep in mind that the uh, fundamental of the Thai economy notwithstanding the data that you're seeing uh, in the last few weeks that are of course determined by the fact that uh, 10% of the population were on the street instead of working um, on the street protesting uh, the fundamental of the Thailand economy remains very, very good. So uh, this dip, dip in uh, trade fa- and factory output for April, you think it's temporary? Yeah, yeah. So you don't think that, um, say, Japanese car makers, who are big investors in Thailand, they're not going to be put off by yet another round of turmoil? I mean, they, they've been pulling workers out of Thailand. You don't, don't think know, that they're investors... sussing out new um, countries for their manufacturing bases? No, I think it's not, it's not that easy. It's a very opportunistic investment. So, so it goes. Uh, I mean, w- once you start having relationship with uh, local suppliers, with uh, with everything else that you need to make a greenfield investment on, if you are a Japanese company in Thailand, uh, you don't uh, you don't just stop and you don't just move to another country, especially when 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 really, as I said, the fundamentals remain strong. It's a very deleveraged economy. Uh, in the past uh, 18 months, instead of going up, as in other nations in Asia, credit has gone down. Mm. Uh, and so this is very, uh, of course, very, very promising. Uh, very low wages, uh, very uh, good um, infrastructure, especially transportation infrastructure, and, uh, and of course, uh, the geographical location. For international investors, also Thailand is important because it's seen as a proxy to Myanmar. Nobody knows how to invest in Myanmar, and, and for now... Uh, the stock market of Thailand has become uh, the international proxy. Uh, How for, can you uh, ex- for... explain to me why why it is why the stock market in Thailand is a proxy for Myanmar? Are there are there a lot of Myan- uh, Myanmar businesses listed in Bangkok? No, that's the contrary. Actually, Thailand is the is the country that is seen as Myanmar, both at the private sector and the public sector, as their window to the Western world. To put it this way, because because uh, Thai companies so, are investing in Myanmar. Yeah, for example, I mean the only flight. Uh, the only international company, international airline that is uh, that is able to fly there is Thai Airways. So if you want to go from Hong Kong, Hong Kong to 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 Myanmar, basically you have to fly uh, you have to fly through Bangkok. So uh, this is a, this is just a, a small example. There are a number of companies that are uh, really involved, um, Thai companies that are really involved in uh, in into business with Myanmar. The other the other 
companies that are involved into this business and can be seen as a proxy uh, to Myanmar growth uh, is of course China uh, but of course it's very difficult to invest in China because of uh, onshore offshore yes, and, and the Asia Asia market's yeah. market not looking that right uh, thank you very much for joining me this morning Luca that's Luca Silipo chief economist of the Texas Asia Pacific with the Alibaba IPO on the horizon a lot of attention is being paid to the corporate governance of Chinese companies or the lack of it. John Plender, FT's columnist, compiled a rough list of why investors should be wary of Chinese companies listing abroad. One, a raft of accounting frauds that emerged from the now notorious reverse mergers on Nasdaq. Corporate governance generally compares unfavorably with US tech companies. Nasdaq allows foreign issuers to apply lower corporate governance standards that are their home countries. Property rights in China notoriously vague and changeable at official whim. And quality of information is an issue, which I think all seem fair enough. Um, our next guest thinks Chinese companies can do better at managing their images. Let's welcome Robert Greaves, CEO of Hamilton Advisors. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Enid. Thank you very much for coming to the studio. Thank you. Now, Robert, I need to ask you first, do you represent any of the companies that we are likely to discuss on the show? No, I don't. Okay, great. So it will be unbiased, neutral opinion. Um, Alibaba is expecting to raise more than $15 billion in the US in August. So a lot is at stake. And do you think it has handled the whole IPO um, process well in terms of you know, giving the image that it is a reliable, strong company? Well, so far it's been fine, Enid, but it hasn't come to market really yet. That's later this summer when it begins trading, and I think that's when the the, uh, the rubber's going to hit the road and we'll find out how good their story is and what they say and how well they communicate. So when I do have Chinese com- companies that are either listed or going to market, uh, we advise them, my company advises them to be as transparent as possible and tell their story, which is easier said than done. Part of it is the culture of SOEs in China, where not everything is brought out into the light of day. The other is simply just various factors in various industries. You know, you have the supply chain issues in a lot of industries, including the milk uh, uh, amalgamators of a few years ago. Um, You have a lot of corruption. You have corruption everywhere. That's a factor. And let's face it, the United States is very stringent as a regulator and demands a lot of companies that list. Well, the thing about um, U.S. standards versus Hong Kong standards was that is that still true given the Alibaba case study? Because you know we all know that the Hong Kong Stock Exchange turned away this gigantic IPO because Alibaba had um, insisted on sticking with this rather unusual corporate governance structure where a small group of people holding a minority state would have all the say in governance. It, it is true. It's still true, Enid. So I think um, <clears throat> what you're saying in your questions, what you're going to see as a result of Alibaba is there's going to be a great demand in the U.S. for Chinese Internet stocks. And you're going to see more and more come to market. They're going to be the uh, the flavor du jour. But the same issues that you just mentioned with John Plunder and the FT that we've been talking about are going to obtain when these companies come to market as well. In fact, we've had a prelude to that. JD.com came to market re- recently, uh, China's leading consumer direct seller. Tunio, which is China, China's leisure travel services uh, uh, company, Uh, Both very popular. Remember Baidu nine years ago came to market? That's been sort of the sleepier stand-in for these companies. 
Baidu, over nine years, their stock went from $2.70 to almost $170 per share. So Alibaba is going to come off a higher base, and there's going to be a great frenzy in, uh, of interest. So these Chinese tech companies have basically managed to tell their story, as you, as you call it, pretty well then. Well, I, I would say that, but I would also say this. They're being painted with the same broad brush, and each of their stories is going to be a little different. So investors might have some rude awakenings and surprises along the way. Hmm. Um, well, there are um, other Chinese companies that have had more trouble um, with, um, well, I suppose the perception abroad, especially in the U.S. For example, companies like Huawei, uh, Foxconn, and so on. Um, what would you be, be? What would be your advice to them? Well, I think uh, in the case of Huawei, which is very interesting, because. Um, the U.S. government keeps trying to, to close them out. So they've gone to Europe and the rest of Asia, and they're doing very well. Uh, they, they're one of the largest producers of wireless network products and suppliers in the world today. There has been no indication that, that their products or services are suspect or deficient in any way. So you would imagine that over time, Huawei might get in the door in the United States. So I think Huawei is one of those companies where you don't need to give them a lot of advice. They're doing uh, what they should be doing. Another company that you didn't mention that I think is very interesting is Hire, the, mm. the appliance maker. They do everything right, but they don't really talk much. They're very quiet. And in fact, that's a company that should be doing much better in international markets. Well, and um, Huawei does talk a lot, but it's unlike Hire, it's not a publicly listed company. Do you think that an IPO would be a good idea? Um, it will, well, make them more transparent. Uh, it might. Uh, that's one theory. Um, uh, I, I would not want to say what Huawei should or should not be doing, but you will notice in the, in the last few years, many Chinese companies that were listed on the NYSE have delisted uh, and either gone private or are looking to relist on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And uh, well, the um, and that gives the impression that the Hong Kong exchange is um, more relaxed when it comes to the information they get from the companies. Is that true? No, it's not. In fact, uh, as you just mentioned, in the case of Alibaba, some of their regulations are more stringent than, than those of the NYSE. But I think the Chinese companies that delist and come back to these shores feel that they'll have a better hearing and a more sympathetic audience, uh, investor audience here than in New York City. Great. Thank you very much for joining the show today, Robert. That's Robert Grieve, CEO of Hamilton Advisors. Next, let's say hello to Heather Timmons, Asia correspondent for Quartz, who will take us through the latest consumer tech stories. Good morning, Heather. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Well, I mean, I mentioned earlier on the show that um, we've got you know, all these headlines, really exciting products being launched by these tech companies. Let's start with Apple buying Beats Electronics. Um, why? Why do you think it's investing so much money in an audio equipment maker? What's the long-term strategy here? Um, you know, that's a question that analysts have been asking since the deal started uh, emerging in the past couple of days. Is why would why would Apple pay as much as three billion dollars for a, a music subscription service that only has about a hundred thousand subscribers when Apple's got its own iTunes? And and a, a lot of people we've been speaking to at courts think that the answer really is the headphones that Beats makes. Um, Apple and Google and and other tech companies are looking to get into. Something, you know, that, that we like to call wearables, and it just means technology that you wear. And we've seen Google roll out Google Glass with, with some success. It's sort of flashy and new, but not really being adopted um, in, a, in a major way right now. And the headphones that Beats makes could be maybe a more palatable version of Google Glass. You could wear a pair of headphones, as we are right now, 
And someone could be telling you, you know, your next guest is coming on in three minutes, or you could be walking down the street with them, and they could say, okay, the restaurant you're looking for is on your left. Wow. You know, um, or you could wear them while you're exercising. All that stuff that sort of technology is supposed to help us do, but we fiddle with our phones right now, and we, you know, are not looking where we're going. But can't, and why not Apple, put it- can't Apple just make their own headphones? My Beats, Beats headphones don't do all that now. Right. Apple would <laughs> need to completely remake them anyway. Uh, you know, that's what, that's what Tim Cook said about this deal is he said that we could make of course we could make this but they were really interested in 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 getting the people and getting dr dre so what's dr dre going to be doing at apple i have no idea <laughs> but um inspiring creative things i guess now we also hear that um, apple is going to um, unveil a smart home platform i don't know i mean i just i just don't find all that talk about smart homes and so on refrigerators that talk to you that compelling because it seems to be a lot of companies trying to trying to do that right so am i am i missing something here is this going to be transformative for the whole tech industry well i I, people have been talking about smart homes for i don't know for decades almost you know i I don't know if you remember the the cartoon the jetsons but there was this idea that you know at this point in our lives everything would sort of be done for us and of course it's not and you slip out to go get some milk um there are some studies, particularly in the U.S., that show that people are starting to embrace this technology, though, that, that about one in five Americans now has a device in their home connected to their smartphone. And yeah, I was just visiting a friend with a new baby, and they put baby cams up in their house. And so when she goes to work, she can see his crib and see what he's doing and um, all of those things, um, which is, you know, I mean, that's a connected house right there. Um, and the, go it, ahead, sorry. But the, yeah, like you know, video cams, watching a baby. Yeah, we, we a lot of companies do that sort of thing, right? I mean, what do you think companies like the, the leaders in the field, Google, Apple, are going to do that will completely change the way we live? Well, I think if you're Apple, you want to uh, you want to have the you want to be the one spot that everybody connects all of their stuff to, and so all of your information about your daily routine goes through this one thing that Apple either controls or owns, um, which can help them help other people sell you more stuff. <laughs> and how life will be so much better for that. <laughs> now, turning to Google, it has um, thirty billion U.S. dollars to spend abroad. Apparently, what do you think it want to buy? Um, I, you know, I was just looking back at what they've bought in the past year, and it's it's really hard to say. They've bought an interesting collection of sort of things that help them build out their map building technology, some security related stuff, little tiny deals here and there from Brazil to Germany to Israel to Australia. Um, I would I would expect they would probably be moving into this this sort of wearable connected home space also um they are they also their big deal recently was nest which is sort of a i don't know it's a smart thermostat company it's a it's a something that sort of adjusts your house temperature to what it thinks you like or what you tell it that you like it also has carbon dioxide monitors and things like that um so maybe more stuff like that cool well thanks heather for coming to the studio today that's uh, heather timmons asia correspondent for quartz thanks we've so come to the end of the show i'm afraid but let me give you the latest weather update it will be mainly fine and hot apart from isolated showers in the morning the maximum temperature during the day will be about 32 degrees in urban areas and one or two degrees higher in the new territories current temperature is 28 degrees the outlook mainly fine and very hot in the next few days thank you for listening to my Money for Nothing. This is Enid Choi, and I'll be back tomorrow at 8. Coming up next is Back Chat. That's after the news.
The U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry has called the fugitive American intelligence analyst Edward Snowden a traitor and a coward for not facing American justice. Mr. Kerry said he should man up and return to the U.S. He was speaking after Mr. Snowden blamed Washington for forcing him into exile in Russia after revoking his passport. In his first American interview, Mr. Snowden said his intentions were to go to South America. He insisted that he was a trained spy working in electronic surveillance and not just a low-level analyst. I was trained as a spy in sort of the traditional sense of the word in that I lived and worked undercover overseas, uh, pretending to work in a job that I'm not, uh, and even being assigned a name that was not mine. Now, the government might deny these things. They might frame it in certain ways and say, oh, well, you know, he's a low-level analyst. But I've developed sources and methods for keeping our information and people secure in the most hostile and dangerous environments around the world. Uh, So when they say I'm a low-level systems administrator, that I don't know what I'm talking about, I'd say it's somewhat misleading. The husband of a Pakistani woman stoned to death by her family outside a court in Lahore has said the police did nothing to stop the attack. She was three months pregnant. The BBC's Kim Katters reports from Islamabad. Farzana Parveen was killed in broad daylight just outside the court where she'd come to defend her decision to marry for love. It ended in blood. Her bereaved husband, Muhammad Iqbal, told the BBC that when the couple arrived at the Lahore court yesterday, 20 of his wife's relatives were there waiting and they tried to take her away. As she struggled to free herself, they dragged her to the floor, pelted her with bricks and then bludgeoned her to death. 